The opinions expressed in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. So for the entire run we've done this show from 2006 to now, um, I've always made jokes about not having a real guest to do this. Norm's great whenever he comes on when we do the Anime North episodes, and but you know he, we can always count on hearing from him. But I'm so honored that today that streak ends. First, when uh, a little later, when um, Jesse uh, Jesse Betteridge talks with us during our regular episode later this evening. But I am so honored to welcome uh, to talk with us for a little bit. We'll see for how long, because you know how we are, James. Um, I'm so well honored to welcome Fred Schott. To me, it doesn't need much of an introduction to anybody, to longtime fans, probably won't need too much of an introduction. Translator extraordinaire, uh, worked on, works, has worked on a lot of, a lot of Keystone projects. Uh, worked, with, uh, te- worked with Osama Tezuka as a translator. That's probably the key one. And um, also, this is his first visit to Toronto and Anime North in 21 years, since the second Anime North back in 1998. I was almost at 2000, back in 1998. So, um, well, first of all, it, it is good to hear see you again, Fred, after all these years. It's great to be back. It's great to be alive, to be able to be back. <laughs> <laughs> no, well... Okay, and we have to, and he admitted, uh, Fred admitted that maybe we have to jog his memory a little bit from yeah. 21 years ago. Yeah, I couldn't remember whether it was 98 the second or the first anime north. So there was one year before, I this, think. The, yeah, 1998 was the second anime north, oh, okay. which took place at the Michener Institute in downtown Toronto, which was okay. just just um, near Chinatown in, yeah. In, yeah. Da- in the downtown course. So it was a, you know, it's a, med- it's a medical, um, I think the Michener Institute is still a medical uh, studies building for the U of T. And that makes a lot of sense because I also, I mean, there are certain things I remember, certain things I don't. And one thing I do remember is that uh, afterwards, several of us went out to dinner in Chinatown and we ate Chinese food. And I remember there was somebody at the table who was involved in networking, computer networking. Okay. And I thought, okay, you know, and I think Jack Kim. I remember yes. the name Jack Kim. He, he was, was one of the which, early. Which he was. Uh, he was. Um, uh, he was one of the organizers. Yeah, right? he, he was one, one of, of the people. early guys, right? The pioneers. Mm-hmm. So one I remember pioneers. that. I Been remember that very years. clearly. I remember being at this table. I think. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was funny because um, uh, Eileen uh, Eileen McAvoy, the uh, program director here at Anime North, just before as we came into the room, presented us with an old picture of your appearance here in, back in '98, uh, when you were doing uh, a couple panels with him with Norm. Yeah, there I am with my ponytail, yeah, my blue shirt. <laughs> I remember that. As I said, the ponytail, it took, it's me, gone. <laughs> it took me a minute. When, we, when I saw you yesterday, it took me a minute to ultimately recognize you. So. Well, what's amazing is that Norm looks almost exactly the same as he does today. I recognize the him. Yeah, the Captain Caveman look, just yeah. a little bit more gray hair, I think. Yeah, yeah, a little more gray hair, but he looks pretty much the same. <laughs> he hasn't changed. Yeah. So um, when, when we first met, um, I was asked at the time in 98 to do a panel about history depicted in anime and manga. And um, a lot of that discussion, as I remember it, and maybe my, and you admit my memory of it may be a little better than yours, um, centered on you know stuff that's that was that told stories from the war, yeah. from World War II. And then I brought up Rurouni Kenshin with you, yeah. and I tried certain ties with it just yeah. because I knew you knew uh, since I knew from your um, Tezuka work that, uh, and I knew that he um, that Tezuka was a fan of Takarazuka. Uh, when uh, regularly saw their plays, um, I noted I noted to you that the woman that Kenshin, the woman who played Kenshin, Kenshin was played Kenshin was played by a yeah. woman was Mayu Sukaze, who was a, yeah. who start who had her start as a big star with Takarazuka. Yeah. Actually played and was actually a, actually played Oscar in the Rose of Versailles oh, in one wow. of the plays. Oh, wow. So that was the tie I used with you, and I okay. and I know I caught well, your attention I, with that. I remember because you were one of the first most informed fans of Rurouni Kenshin that I had met. So. <laughs> and I didn't know a lot about the series, so it was interesting. It, I found it, I, I like history as well. So. Yeah, and it was interesting to me because <clears throat> over the years since we started to coin the phrase historical fiction, and that was when I thought when I think back, uh, looking back on it all, I look at uh, Kenshin as one of those 
one of the things that kind of um, where I start to really solidify the term in my mind. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the term has been, you know, used on mass and more mainstream in mainstream um, yeah. stories since. Titanic probably being the most famous. Yeah, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's amazing to see in a convention like this too how so many people get interested in history and, and learn about history through anime or manga and you know they say that anime and manga are the gateway to the, the the drug gateway to japanese culture but uh, actually they're also a wonderful entry point into history mm -hmm. and i meet more and more people now who have gotten into studying history because they were fans of some particular series set in a particular era in japan and they just got hooked Yes, that, that's sort and of I what it was. And I feel that helps. Like, when you go to visit a place, it's more than just Akihabara or oh, yeah. Denden Town. Yeah, yeah. I go to a place and I want to see what are these people, what are their stories. Yeah. And there are so many stories in Japan from the many different temples mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. many different cities yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. And even some of their saddest histories have mm -hmm. different stories. Yeah. Between Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I had yeah. people that went there and had very different experiences. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So you, uh, and, and I've always been a fan of history. I, I love history. I, I think there's so much to learn from it. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, yeah, it, watching anime, manga, I just got in, more interested in Japanese history and, 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 and in culture in large. And then we started to learn a little bit more about maybe some of the, polit some of the political stuff and maybe some of the cities actually depicted. Like, you often see uh, little towns that we may have never heard of yeah. depicted in a yeah. in a movie or feature. And yeah. that's what we yeah. uh, so Miyazaki is famous for that. Studio yeah. Ghibli is famous for that. And yeah. in more recent times, um, Shinkai has kind of done it himself as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah. I, so um, yeah, the gateway is there. And I think for fandom these days, from my standpoint, it helps. Like, you can't help but maybe at least gain some sort of curiosity about about. How how this is what it may actually be like mm -hmm. in real life. Yeah. So even if it's fiction, yeah. even if it is yeah. fiction, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, you, well, I mean, Kenshin was fiction, but yeah. it certainly yeah. pulled from a lot of yeah. real real um, yeah, events from and the characters, Meiji era and stuff especially like that. from yeah. that era. Mm -hmm. And I think usually the creators, even manga and anime, and, and well, not just manga and anime, but all good creators of fiction, they usually try and do a huge amount of research to s set their stories in believable environments and believable time frames. And mm -hmm. I meet people like that, not just among an anime artists, but you know, even writers. I'm always impressed with the amount of work that some people do before they start writing fiction, because you would think you could just create everything, but actually it's like computer graphics are so difficult to create like a feature film because you have to create everything, but if you're creating something about history, at least you have a frame of reference. You have something elements to model after. You know? But sometimes, it, but it does also involve its own set of research. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, oh, like I, on the topic of historical fiction, I met an, a Canadian, uh, Canadian Japanese author who wrote about who wrote a story about um, about Japanese Canadians who got deported back. Uh, back to Japan, mm -hmm. even though they were born in Canada in the mm -hmm. aftermath of the war. Mm -hmm. This is how our inter mm -hmm. internment, uh, yeah. how Canadian intern internment went here. Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of those incidences. Yeah, so yeah. she wrote a story about somebody who was, uh -huh. and it was fictional, but yeah. it was made in that context, yeah. knowing that that type of stuff happened. Well, where do we continue? Where do we really start our little conversation? Because um, when we, um, I mentioned we want to talk, I want to talk about like four specific things, um, th your three panels, which we'll get to in a few mi in a minute, and then I looked uh, across your, um, oh geez, I, I, I'm having trouble. I have to call it up, me and me and being prepared, uh, look up uh, some of your um, accolades and stuff and um, works, past works, and it mentioned and it mentioned to me or it was brought out that you received an award from. Um, from from the uh, from the emperor, the Order of the Rising Sun, back in two thousand nine. Right, and I have to qualify it because it's gold way, gold rays with rosette. There are many different levels of the same award, and so yeah, kind of like the Order <laughs> of Canada. Kind of like here. Order of Canada. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not it's not the like top that. level, but it was but it was a huge honor. It's, it's still, still there. A very it was big a huge honor. honor, for, huge honor. Yeah. So and for it, what I do, it was just totally unexpected. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we I mean, when you told us your story, uh, when we'll get to we'll get to four immigrants a bit later. Mm -hmm. Uh, like what you have done, what you did, and telling that story, I think, and then promoting Tezuka and his legacy over the over the years. That's yeah. It was still quite a 
surprise, and, and, and it, it remains a huge honor. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, um, the word emperor came out, and obviously um, we are now, I think, near the end of the first month of the Reiwa era um, with the uh, change. We, in, in, our, in a recent episode, we talked about the change of the emperor, um, the, cha the change from Akihito to Naruhito. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, um, you mentioned during the, one of your panel yesterday on Four Immigrants that, uh, towards the end, that you, mentioned, that you did meet um, the new emperor. Yeah, I did. I met him. I I won the Japan Foundation Award, um, and one of the results of that was that I didn't. Well, I didn't meet the reigning emperor. I met the crown prince before he became the new emperor. So I met him just a, a little over, I guess, a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I met both him and. Um, Masako, the Empress. Yeah, the the now, who is now the Empress, and she was the Crown Princess at that point, I guess, mm -hmm. if that's the right word. Um, and so it wasn't in conjunction with uh, uh, the, the the big award that you mentioned, the Order mm -hmm. of the Rising Sun Gold Medal. So my, with my mistake. So. No, no, no. That was actually. Uh, it's interesting because I have a plaque at home on the wall, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's one of the few things that I actually put on the wall, and I, I look at it once in a while because in Japanese it's a little bit vague as to whether the emperor gave it to me or whether it was just issued in the imperial palace. And in reality, I was granted the award in the consulate in San Francisco, but the plaque that I was given says that the emperor has applied the seal <laughs> on this wonderful uh, piece of, you know, fancily printed paper. Uh, so I didn't meet the emperor then, even though it was technically issued by him. But when I won the Japan Foundation Award just the other year, as part of that award, uh, you have an audience with uh, either the emperor or the crown prince. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I guess because the emperor was busy and he was about to retire anyway, uh, I met with the crown prince, who is now the emperor, and it was uh, it was a lovely meeting. They were both lovely. They see they come across that way. Oh, they're very sweet. Yes, um, both the crown prince or the emperor and the empress are they're very sweet people. Mm -hmm. they're very sweet. They, we thought like James brought it up. They are very different, um, very well, uh, more Western educated because of their. Uh, That's like, right. They were they were um, they were educated in, uh, in England. So there's uh, on the topic of parallels with England, right? Yeah, and, and so they're they're very knowledgeable and they're very sweet. And I met them with actually the other award winners. There were two other award winners that year of the Japan Foundation Award, um, and we had this audience. And I had an opportunity to you know actually ask them a question or mm -hmm. have a little dialogue mm -hmm. with them, and. Uh, they were asking me what I do and so forth and so on, and I said I'm a big fan of Tetsuo Atom or Astro Boy, and I said that I had worked on the, the uh, translated the entire manga series, 23 volumes, and I knew that uh, the Emperor today was a big fan of Tetsuo Atom or Astro Boy when he was a boy, because I have a fabulous photo of him with his mom until recently the Empress, uh, and he's looking up at an Astro Boy doll in, in 1964, I think So it he is. would have been a, a teenager, I think. No, he, no was, he's a young he boy. was a boy. He was a boy. Oh, wait, he was born in the 60s. Yeah, he was a boy. Oh, boy, yeah, that's right. So he was, he was just So this, in this photo, he's looking at this, what today would be a very clunkily designed uh, Astro Boy figurine or a Mighty Adam doll, but he's just, you can see he's in awe of this. I'm not sure if it's because of the black and white, but it looked like such a striking image when yeah. you showed it in your panel yeah, today and yeah. stuff like that. And it was too bad you couldn't find a way to use it, as you said, because there was no way they were going to let you <laughs> yeah. use it. But it was such a striking image. It's but when I... That, but, uh, words, image tells a thousand yeah. words, and that was one of those images. It just told a thousand words. But when words. I was... Talking with the now emperor, uh, I, I said, to me, the original manga were so fascinating to be to go back and read them as an adult, even though they're written for ten-year-old boys. And I said, I just found the stories so fascinating to see because Tezuka was writing about our era, 
in his time, which was 1951, 52, 53, whatever. And, and the now emperor, I remember distinctly, he said, he said, yes, he says, I used to like Astro Boy. Oh, I should go back and, I should go back and read the manga. <laughs> that really stuck in my mind. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it was, uh, it was it, it was a timely piece because obviously mm. it came in the aftermath of the um, of the war and the bomb and the and the a bombs and it kind of kind of delved a little bit into into that type of stuff. Yeah, although I think the real reasons for its popularity had not so much to do with that, but for the yearning for modern science and a modern world and mm-hmm. technology and how they were progressing forward and stuff yeah, like that going and forward, what can happen not looking with back. that because yeah. that was the environmentalist yeah. bent that yeah. you did, yeah. you're paving yeah. over your past yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. But some incredible things to put in for a younger audience, oh, and yeah. it's, and there are other works that have done it afterwards and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it's so few and far between. I find when you have yeah. that. Especially when you go back, as you said, and you read it with an adult mind, you're like, oh, oh my com- goodness. It's, it's amazing. Like, and, and you feel, will just stick on a page, right? You're not just flipping through. Yeah. You're actually engaging in it. Well, most people in North America, at least, they know of Astro Boy or Mighty Adam through the animation. And, of course, the animation is so watered down because all animation is created by a large organization and there are budget constraints and there are... Broadcast. All kinds of broadcast <laughs> restrictions and so forth and so on. But if you go back and you read the original stories, it's just shocking to think that Tezuka was writing these themes about AI and man-machine interface and racial discrimination and and even suicide bombers and drug addiction in the 1950s. And he's writing for 10-year-old boys. It wouldn't it wouldn't even be possible today. <laughs> so those stories have just incredible depth if you read them as an adult and and actually for children today they're hard to read because there's they're the early ones are quite dense is it is it, is it because of the, also part of partly because of the language like the way uh, the not so much the language it's it's mainly because the the pace of reading manga has changed so much now people are used to being able to skim through many many pages and go through a whole book tankobon at incredible speed and in those days there were a lot more words. Pages were more expensive to produce, uh, so the pages are much more dense in terms of information. And okay, that, that, that's an interesting concept to me. Yeah. Um, now let's go talk Tezuka. I guess that that was the, that was the first panel. Uh, that was the, the panel you did earlier today. You met him. I mean, how oh, much? Yeah, how, what, yeah. what was your interactions like with him? Uh, well, I knew him from 1977 until he died in 1989, and I, <laughs> I knew him quite well. Um, I never went to stay at his house or anything like that, but I had quite a close relationship with him in the sense that, you know, he would call me up and send a fax sometimes, and this is before <laughs> email, you know, but he would say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And, so, and he would, I, I still have a collection of like New Year's cards he would send, and, and he would, he liked to tease me, you know, so it was more than just a, a working relationship. He would, he would always say, you know, why aren't you married yet? You know, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> and, we met, and we met your wife. So right, right, right. You right, did right. good. Right, right. I right. think he'd be yeah, really that was, impressed. That was after he passed away. He would have been relieved. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I worked as his interpreter many times when he would come to America. And also I, I interpreted for him uh, in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. We came to mm-hmm. film festivals in Canada and I went to Disney World with him, and I went all the way around America with him. I went to the UN with him, and you know I was very fortunate to be able to spend a lot of kind of quality time with him because when we're in an airplane, you know, I'd be sitting next to him, and I'd have like four or five hours sleep just to talk. Oh, you know, the other way around. And I was always fascinated by him. He was older than I am, of course. Mm-hmm. So for me, he was like. In Japanese, they say uh, he was like somebody above the clouds. He was, you know, that revered. Yeah, hugely famous and, and yeah, so I forth mean, and so on. I was just young, you know. I was I didn't know it, anything. It caught my attention when you show when you showed me that showed that picture about significant people in the twenty. The yeah. Japanese saw yeah. a significant in the twentieth century. Yeah. So and then you you were really taken aback by seeing Tezuka. Yeah, I mean, he was hugely famous when I met him, and I was just you know I was still in my twenties, uh, and I was just honored that he, one thing that was odd was he was always interested in what I thought and I realized in retrospect it was partly because I speak Japanese and, and 
he probably didn't have much contact with people who could speak his language who were not Japanese. So I was a ah, a vehicle part of him. the uh, part of the whole translation process actually. Yeah, so I I mean I worked as his interpreter, mm-hmm. but he also wanted a lot of information from me and I think that uh, I was useful to him in, in that way. So we would get involved in long conversations and I've actually written about it, but once on my way to here, Canada to a film festival I was supposed to meet him in the San Francisco airport and he was coming from Japan and I was sitting at the airport after he arrived we were supposed to change plane he was supposed to we were supposed to get on the plane to go to Canada from SFO and we're sitting in the lobby in front of the the boarding area we're in the boarding area but in front of the counter and I became so involved in the conversation with Tezuka that I didn't realize that the the plane to Canada had come and landed in San Francisco and everybody had boarded and they'd already taken off. So I, <laughs> you missed his plane. <laughs> I missed the plane. Oh, no. Yeah, so I was in big trouble, but he was very sweet to me. And uh, there was no problem and he, he understood because, of course, he'd been involved in you know talking with me. So he was, I guess, partly responsible for distracting me. But, uh, oh, but you it was so embarrassing, let's put it that way. Because I, yeah, was, I sound, was also partly in charge of his schedule. You know? Oh, well. And I can't remember whether he had other... People with him then. I'm sure he had one or two. There were always other people in his entourage, but we missed the plane entirely because I was just so involved in this discussion yeah. with him, mm, and that happened so a lot. <laughs> and he would and he would remember things that I had said, and later on, you know, sometimes he would bring them up, and he would even write about them. He used to have columns in uh, what was called Kinema Junpo, which is a um, movie magazine. It's hard to believe, but. In addition to all of his work and all the things he did, he also wrote columns for a movie magazine. And in those columns, sometimes he would quote things that I had told him. You know, I remember I told him about like Murphy's Law. You know, we oh about Murphy's man, Law. that would be an interesting yeah, translation for him. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that because we have sayings yeah, and yeah, they don't really yeah, translate, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's like. But I, you know, I often tried to tell him things about America and you know, American culture and things like that. And and he would he remembered everything. He had a a frighteningly good memory. You miss the conversations. I, I, I would, yeah. when you had those conversations, the way you describe these conversations, you must miss them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's been what 1989, so 30 years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. No, I I first met him in 1977, and I was with a a, a small group called Dadakai, hmm. and I had an American, good American friend, Jared Cook, who also worked as Tezuka's interpreter. And then there were two Japanese, Shinji Sakamoto and Midori Ueda. And the four of us, we put together this group to translate uh, manga into English and promote manga uh, to the Western world. And that's how I met Tezuka, because Sakamoto somehow got some connection to Tezuka Productions, and we got an appointment. And we went there, to, and we met the manager, and we were going to ask him if we could translate to Phoenix. And then Tezuka just materialized and he started talking to us. And, uh, that's how I first met him. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. It's 1977, wow, a long time wow. ago. That, yeah, that's a long floor. time ago. That's a great story. Though. Long time ago. Yeah. Long time ago. Well, before you were born and I was yep. barely around. So. Well, I know later he told me that originally he thought I was a little scary. Cause, really? Well, I'm tall. Oh, you know? well, yes. I'm tall and I, my, I probably had... I didn't have a ponytail, but my hair was a little long. Maybe I had a beard at the time, and I, I guess he thought that, you know, whoa. <laughs> Almost like Norm, actually, maybe. <laughs> maybe a bit like Norm. <laughs> so, but uh, I wish we can go on and on, but wow, that sounds like, like quite the experience having uh, having been been in his presence. So maybe the, so the whole bit about him being like a significant figure in the 20th century, it's all, it's, it's justified. Yes. It really does sound justified. Oh, yeah. He so. was a... I, as a, I worked as an interpreter for most of my life, and I've met a lot of famous people. I've interpreted for many people, and I think I can say safely he, he, he was a true genius. Mm-hmm. A true genius. And missed still to this day, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's move on, because as I said... Sure. Let's... 
take, change subjects because I did want to talk about all the uh, touch on just a little bit on each of the subjects uh, of your panels. Yeah. The other one we, um, which is the one I saw in full yesterday, was um, you talked all at length about yeah. about um, the four immigrants. Mark. Yeah, I can talk about that forever. Oh, yeah. I know, I know, it, and that was a really informative yeah. thing. When we first met back in '98, uh, that book was about to come out. Uh, yeah, I was wondering whether I talked about it. I can't remember I think what you, I talked about. You did mention it um, at the time. I don't remember you talking I about it. I probably didn't give a whole presentation. No, on it, yeah. but now you have, yeah. and it sounds like you've like had longer time to reflect on this because there's a quite the story behind yeah. this. Yeah, well, I'm, I, all I'm, that research. And I'm still very involved with it. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Well, uh, Kiyama, Henry. Um, oh, I forgot his Japanese. Henry name. Kiyama, Yoshitaka. Yoshitaka Kiyama. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was, um, uh, uh, well, I wish I, we can't uh, go too much into, like, details. Uh, this was a, this is a well, fairly I, autobiographical. Yeah, I can, I can go into a little detail. And, uh, oh, we have your time. Micro, your microphone won't melt. But uh, he came to San Francisco in 1904, and he lived in San Francisco off and on for many years until he went back to Japan when um, relations between the U.S. and Japan got so bad it was hard for him to stay before World War II. Um, and he came to California to study fine art. He was one of the early Japanese artists who wanted to learn Western perspective and coloring and oil painting and that sort of thing. And he was very talented in fine art, in oil and also sketching. And he attended a college in San Francisco, but he also worked as a, what were then called schoolboys. That was the term for... Uh, Japanese who were used as houseboys and servants and whatnot. And he was part of a class called Shose in Japanese, which really means the sort of intellectual students, really. And he focused on learning Western art and fine art, and he became a very good artist. But at some point in 1927, he decided to create a comic strip. And he exhibited the work for the comic strip in San Francisco and it was really all in color and I think he was hoping to get it in, serialized in a newspaper uh, but he couldn't. Uh, it was a bilingual work you had to be able to read underst and understand Japanese and uh, English in order to fully understand it. There was no translation provided for either. So his market, he was a terrible businessman, his market was probably uh, just limited really to the people in his immediate circle of friends and his immediate environment. Uh, but in creating this work that he exhibited in 1927, which was uh, over 114 pages, he really created the first documentary comic strip, autobiographical comic strip. And when he, he later had that printed in 1931 and published as a book, you can say arguably, depending how you define a comic book, that uh, an immigrant from Japan created the first comic book or first graphic novel in the United States or in North America. So that was my entry point for mm -hmm. this story. And then in many ways, obviously, it was a touch point for the, uh, for the manga, for manga. In Japan, too. So. Well, not so much in Japan, because his influence in Japan was basically zero. He okay. went back to Japan, and I think because of the war, it ah. uh, would be very difficult for somebody who had lived as long as he had in the United States to be accepted naturally. Uh, so he went back to his little tiny hometown and became a, an art instructor at the local school, mm -hmm. high school. Uh, so he was cut off from Tokyo. If he'd been able to integrate into the Tokyo artist society, he might have had a much bigger impact. But very few people in Japan until recently had, had ever heard of him. Yeah, uh, the um, the book was, the um, For Immigrants was uh, recently was translated for a ja for Japanese audience, but it sounds like, uh, well, correct well, me, uh, the status in terms of the For Immigrants manga in Japan. Like, Well, when Henry went back to Japan in the late, late 30s, 20s, actually, okay. when he first, he went back and forth several times. But when he went back to have his work printed, uh, he wasn't thinking of getting it published in Japan or a readership okay. in Japan at all. So it was just targeting the United States. And then when he went back to Japan permanently, uh, his work was never published in Japan. And it was only available really 
or only known about by a limited number of people in Japan who are like uh, historians or uh, historians of manga history. Very few yes. people had ever then, heard of it. Uh, and there, there is no translate. Well, the family has issued reproductions of the original. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was, about 10 years ago, there was a annotated version of the original okay. uh, with notes, with some of my original notes from the English version. So it gets complicated because it was a bilingual manga. Yes. So, so there, there is no pure <laughs> modern Japanese version for young Japanese people to read. So for young Japanese people, it's very hard to read now. Okay. And yeah. you mentioned the language. The language has changed. Much. Yeah, so the language has changed. For a lot of people yeah. now. Yeah, it's, it's hard to read. Yeah. It was major. It was major. Major. Uh, major. Yeah. So, and and in the process, you became you befriended um, the Kiyama family. I have dearly been adopted by the family. <laughs> uh, I I'm very close to them. Yes, uh, um, they're dear friends of mine, and and uh, I know three, four generations of them now, and they all actually the, except for the great grandson, the daughter of Henry and his granddaughter, and their spouses and whatnot. They all live not in the same house, but on the same land that Henry was born in and died in, if you can <laughs> and imagine. And he, he was gone, long gone. He was, passed yeah, away yeah, in 1950. Yeah, yeah, in the 50s, yeah. I didn't want to bring up the musical because it was adapted. Oh, yeah, you yeah. brought up a, you oh. brought up it was adapted into musical. Yes. When, in the panel yesterday, you tried to play at least the um, No like audio the scene. didn't work. No audio didn't work. Um, it is on YouTube. Yes, so I will put that a link oh, for our, li our listeners. Yeah, please. And I, I heard a little bit. It had a very vaudeville, uh, vaudeville yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe to it. But that's the vibe of the comic, because when Henry created it and published it formally in 1931, that was the vibe. And there was an interview with, um, oh, I forgot his name now. The, the Kang? Yes. Yeah. There, was a, there was an interview on, with a local CBS uh, station in San Francisco. Yeah, it's a fabulous musical, and uh, hopefully they'll be able to produce it in other cities because it's just uh, it was so moving and, and it was sold out every night as far as I know and people were just so moved by it would it. be it would be a, of interest in many ends I mean we're and here in Toronto it is a, we do have a very a, a noteworthy um, theater community here and um, on that topic and, I, and this is a bit of an aside um, you know um, Asian Canadian, Asian American actors yeah. would be pining for a job oh, yeah. like that. Should it yeah. ever become available? No, it's a it's a dream job for Asian American or Asian Canadian actors, and that was one of the things that was also so moving about the musical is that all the actors were Asian Americans, and you could just tell that <clears throat> they just put their heart into it. Yes, and they also could relate to the story. That's a key part of it, I think. The story actually resonates so strongly today, especially in the United States, because there's all these issues over immigration. And many of the themes that are built into the story are themes that people are still struggling with today. Which is a little sad. It is sad, yeah. Which I find yeah. kind of sad, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it is sad. But of course, there's a lot of things in the world that are sad. Right? <laughs> yes, there is. There is. So uh, I, I want to bring that up because, I, I, I mean, maybe we can, like, I would have been curious to see this now, now that I know it existed. And obviously, there isn't a run right now, a production running right at the moment. I'm thinking, but it's a big thing because um, to have, like, once again, Asian Canadians fresh off the boat in the states, uh, the sitcom there. Up here in Canada, we have Kim's, 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 Kim's convenience, convenience, which is um, yeah, yeah. The I mean, you, if you have Netflix, you'll, you'll be able fresh to see that. Fresh off the boat, who was that? By Constance. Well, Constance Wu is one of the big stars of it. So she starred in um, Crazy oh, Rich okay. Asians. Um, he's, she's not the like she's one of the co-stars. Oh, I wish I could remember other names in that in that show yeah. right off the top of my head. But you know that's that's been a touch point. As I said, here in Canada we have Kim's Convenience, which tells the story of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. of a, a Korean a Korean yeah, family yeah, yeah, in Toronto, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's based off of a play, yeah. which I'm told has gotten garnered some attention from Korean American actors yeah. uh, down down in the states. Well, both the so both. Kiyama's comic book and then also the musical by Min Kang would, I'm sure, resonate deeply with people in all the city, the major cities in, in Canada as well. Yeah. And I hope that someday people will have a chance to see it because it's, it's uh, deeply moving. Well, it was funny because my father, um, like, obviously they immigrated from the Philippines, but only in recent years, he actually told me about stories of 
of my grandfather. And he told me some very odd stories about, he studied, he briefly studied in the U.S., specifically in Chicago, and he was one of those type of errand boys. But apparently, or and maybe this is my grandfather's tall tales, he worked under Al Capone. Oh, wow. That's he a worked story. under Al Capone as a, as a for errands. And the problem is his um, journals are long lost. They were lost in, yeah. a, in a storm back in the Philippines. So yeah. we have nothing yeah, else yeah. to really refer to. But he, my dad, would t- my dad a few years ago, told me he would tell him hit, that my grandfather would tell him hit those stories when he was a child. Oh, it's too bad you didn't write them down or oh, record I would, them. I will them. probably, now that I brought it up in this conversation, yeah. I'll probably ask my dad to see what he remember, what, what he, yeah. a little bit more about what he remembers. I mean, I don't know what, what the story would have been to, for such servants during that period in Prohibition Chicago. Yeah. But, well, that's one of the... That's that's one of the fascinating things about the four immigrant smanga as it's constituted because there are so few first person works, documentary works by immigrants uh, because most first generation immigrants don't have time to leave records and, mm-hmm. and write stories and you know create comic books and write novels and that kind of thing because everybody's trying to make mm-hmm. a living. So, <laughs> actually, that's one reason that the four immigrants manga makes it such a rare. A rare work. Yeah, I have to dig so my. So if, if you yeah. can find your 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 grandfather's well, journal it, somewhere, be, it, it would be back in the Philippines. Yeah, but, um, but if you could find it, that'd be fascinating. If, it, if it's ever, if it's ever, yeah. if we ever see that, I mean, I'll yeah. have to ask my father what details he remembers. I mean, it's amazing your grandfather was able to actually keep a journal. That's mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. and then um, he then he went back back to the Philippines and then married, had his family, and six kids, mm-hmm. including my father, who was number three in the fa- in the family. And you know the rest goes goes on and on. But yeah, yeah. so I so so I understand that feeling because yeah. I can I see it mm-hmm. through my dad's mm-hmm. my father's stories. Mm-hmm. But that was a fascinating thought in and of itself. And as I said, well, I'll put up a link to at least uh, the YouTube videos of the promotionals promotional yeah, material please, for yeah. it. Um, like, you know what? I, there's somebody we talked. Uh, we remember years ago we saw a theater production. Um, Michael Rubinoff. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked at the theater production. Michael, um, there's a gentleman by the. It was put on by a man named Michael Rubinoff, and he was the uh, co-creator and producer of Come From Away, the uh, which was a major musical here, in, which is a very popular musical here in Canada. So and I'm wondering, is very popular now on Broadway, of course. Yes, and that's the tale of Gander Newfoundland uh, during, during 9/11. Yeah. So. Oh wow, that would be interesting. And wow. I'm a, uh, and we I've talked to him a few times and. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should try and get in touch with him just to see just to touch base with him. Yeah. That would be an interesting thought anyway. Yeah. Oh wow, that but I didn't the musical as I said was a recent development from my standpoint, yeah. but you but hearing you talk about it all these years later, that really that that just caught my attention. Well, it was amazing to me that Min Kang who's the writer and also the composer for the of the musical that he found a copy of the translation I'd done. Oh, a secondhand store. Yeah, secondhand, secondhand bookstore. Story. So you just never know how these things work out. And, and he's a fabulous, um, not only composer, but story creator. Mm-hmm. And his future is bright. He, it looked his really interesting. So yeah, I, his I, future I, is bright. You know, it sounds like, as I said, music that would have been reflective mm-hmm. of the time. So this... I would love to see that. I hope it, and I hope there's another chance somewhere along yeah, the line, and yeah. it gets it gets uh, further east. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets a little further east for us. Yeah. Uh, we would love to see it. Okay, so one last topic. Um, you, tomorrow, you said you'll be doing a panel, and I know that there's a bit of ambiguity in the uh, in the both the um, guides, the electronic and the paper guides. You'll be talking about the uh, manga industry and manga translation today. Um, yeah, I'll be uh, talking about. Give me your overview, and then I have a sure. thought, and I want to sure. just touch something with you. Uh, it's a personal perspective of manga translation, so it'll be based on my own observations and experience in manga with manga translation. Uh, originally, it was mistakenly billed as a talk about Astro Boy, but I kind of covered Astro Boy today oh, in probably, my talk yeah, about James, Tezuka. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot of that, that Tezuka yeah. was Astro Boy, yeah. but that and Blackjack yeah. and yeah. Leo Emperor, yeah. yeah. like all those yeah. ones are his so, big ones. So that's covered. So tomorrow I'll be talking about my own perspective on manga translation, my own ex- some of my own experiences and some of the issues that I've seen and um, give some thoughts on it. Okay. 
And I, and I guess we'll hype that up. Um, I guess we'll, that means we should try and put this up tonight. <laughs> I'll try and put, get this up so I people can listen I just ruined your evening, yeah. No, no, it, <laughs> no. Not, not at all. Not at all. I'm trying to debate, you know, like, uh, how my, uh, it'll probably be worth sitting in and listening to. Um, well, if you're free. Yes, I will by. do my stop best. By, yeah. I, I, I will. I, that is well, there's a lot personal. to do in, in the Well, that's Anime era. North. Yeah, Anime North. There's a lot to do. This is a fun, fun convention. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk about that. There's an incredible we breadth, up. as we say. Right. Right. Yeah. Before we finish up, I mean, yeah, we are looking out. Right. We're, uh, we'll talk about this in a right. second, uh, where we're sitting here in the um, People dressed as samurai, half-naked ladies coming by. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me touch this thought, and then we'll talk about what we're looking at out here. Um well, the follow-up to your uh, during the follow-up at your um, at Anime North 21 years ago. The next night you did uh, you did um, a lecture at the uh, Japan Foundation in Toronto, talking about the uh, the manga manga industry. Well, the manga culture in Japan. One of the striking po- pictures that and much of my memory is blurry, admittedly too. Well, you remember better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you showing this picture of a newsstand at a train station, ah, you have a full stacked movie. full of what wow. would have been shown in jumps, wow. and then you told me by the time when the next hour, these all these books will oh. probably be gone. Good likelihood that many of them will be read and probably disposed of. Mike, you have a, you, you just have a fabulous memory. I think it's selective. You, you have quoted you have that, and then you have the striking thing of what he said in his last panel about how that just doesn't happen anymore. Right? Yeah, but yeah. It's but, crazy. But, but but your memory is exactly what I probably said. <laughs> <laughs> the thing to is, the that, word. That, that was only, to the, the word. The problem is, no, I, I I admit a lot of other parts of that lecture are blurry to me. So. No, but you remember that photo. I mean, I, I, I have a vivid memory of the photo. I know exactly what I say when I introduce that sh- photo because I showed it many, many times over the years it's, in talks. It's still and the one that sticks out with me. You have an incredible memory. My hat is off. It is, <laughs> it is at best selective, I will tell you that. Um, in my right hand, I'm holding a Kindle with a copy, with a translated copy of Kimigori Orange Road on it. Oh, yeah. And, um, like... Now, uh, we talked, I talk a little bit about e-readers and stuff I've, in the past because I have a pa- fascination with these type of things and I've read a few more than a few books with it. Uh, maybe I should just keep this turned on while I show this picture of Ayokawa. Um, Toronto's home to Kobo. Toronto is where Kobo was founded, Rakuten, ah, yes. Rakuten's um, e-reader service wow. and device. It was founded here, actually. Wow. And before and chapters Rakuten Indigo. Yeah. yeah, Chapters Indigo, the bookstore. That. And then really? it, still based, it still has its head offices in Toronto in uh, Liberty Village. So Kobo in the was founded here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chapters Indigo because really? they were like borders and stuff like that. Yeah. And so that's how it got started because wow. they did their so own e-reader. This is the founding city. spun it off. Whoa. And, and then ultimately, like I forgot exactly how long ago it was bought by Rakuten. So. Do you have a Kobo? I don't have a Kobo. I'm more of a Kindle Because the advantage you know, of the Kobo is know. that you can, at least from the United States, you can more easily buy the That's mon- the manga thing. from and Japan. I you you can't buy the on the Kindle, this right? Was one, this is one of those sad parts about being locked into ecosystems. Yeah, because yeah. Um, like at the time, I made my choi- first choice of an e-reader. I chose the Kindle because I thought the technology was a little better. Mm-hmm. Their, their readers were a lot more advanced at that point. But... Yeah. The, the gap has gotten, has certainly quite narrowed. Yeah. And I bought another e-reader. I bought this one secondhand a couple yeah. weeks ago from yeah. a nice lady uh, who yeah. had no yeah. use for it. Yeah. And so I took it. And it's strange because I know the culture, or at least the technology inside, this thing only, this is like a first generation paper white. And for consumption in the United States, this only holds two gigs. This is a two gig one. I know that they've gotten larger, but in, strangely in Japan, um, they got to larger sizes a little sooner. So mm-hmm. 8, 16, 32, those are more common. Those, you get that a lot more readily mm-hmm. in, in Japan. And e-readers, whether it be Kindles or Kobos, you always have weird special editions of them that yeah. probably are only specific to there. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably because of all the images because yeah. they're so data heavy. Uh, they take yeah. up so much space. More they need the space. Yeah, yeah, they need the space yeah, yeah. for um, to have that. But it's just a tragedy that there are these vertical islands, siloed islands of information and they don't... Yeah, that's the you, you, part yeah. I'm wondering now. Like, what's your take on the digital version? Because you meant, because I was, James mentioned to me that the, the digital, consum- digital consumption is iffy at best. And I was There's talking it. to Fred about that before. I guess that we talked about before in the fact that you don't actually own anything now. You're just 
yeah. renting and stuff like that. And yeah. that's the thing of I like owning the book and it's something I feel, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I've, like, I kind of, mm-hmm. I've started to kind of go a little bit that, that way too. Strangely, um, I, this is a, a hold, back, hold off for me. I got these part, I got these copies as part of a Kickstarter campaign when, um, when, um, oh, I forgot, uh, when, who's the author of uh, Orange Road? I keep forgetting off the top of my head. It's, it's, Mat, it's Matsumoto too. Matsumoto, but I forget his first, first name. Yes. yes. Because they, they made that available through Digital Manga, I bought and I have I have a, a, a physical copy as well. But that's sitting with some relatives right now, so I'll pick that. I'll get that from them soon at some point. And but I was able to get these and fascinating. But something tells me it'll be it would be more interesting to still hold paper. And I know there's studies now that say you you retain ab- more you retain more mm-hmm. you absorb better you yeah. absorb information better through the pa- through paper. Yeah, I think one issue in Japan. Well, there's a couple of issues, um, but one big issue, of course, is space, because people don't have big living area. Ah, and, and the mobile environment is easier for certain things. There was some um, video easier. games. It's partly. Yeah, I mean, we talked Marie Kondo, strangely, yeah. one one uh, one time, James and I. But I think it's also the history also says a little bit to me because I saw a documentary about one of the great fires in, in yeah, Japan yeah, during the Edo, yeah, Edo period, yeah, yeah. and how uh, it spawned a culture of just yeah. being able to pick up and go from your residence yeah. during an emergency. And in many respects, yeah. some of that some of that mentality remains. Well, one of the issues with paper manga, of course, in Japan is that stories now are they've been expanded to the point where. You know, there are 20, 50, or 100 volumes, and people don't have room for them. That's... Especially if you're a student in mm-hmm. university or something like that, you have a tiny space, and people in America have this fantasy image of Japanese living spaces as being these sort of... As, Aesthetic. know, aesthetically beautiful. Yeah, they, they, don't, they don't get as much. Like, trust well, me, it, they have no idea what it's really like. It's you know, small. It's, it's yeah. small and small is being generous. Five hundred, five hundred, uh, five hundred square foot apartment, which is yeah. considered small here, would probably be considered larger. Big, there. yeah, yep, and big. and and of course, the amount of clutter in Japanese small apartments is is enormous. So when you're trying to save multiple series and each series is like 50 volumes in Tunkable you know it's just not possible so that's a big driver I think behind sales of digital manga actually for better or worse uh, it depends what what your preference is if you need more space in your apartment then digital is better but if you're a purist and you you like paper manga you like the tactile feel of the paper manga and also if you like the way that manga are laid out in paper in magazines where you have like double page spreads and the whole manga is designed to create tension as you move forward with use of more space and less space and for dramatic imagery. Uh, that's all really difficult in digital manga when people are reading them, for example, increasingly on their phones. Mm-hmm. Where you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're reading, oh, like yeah, reading a, this a is panel base, if you're reading it like on a panel base basis it, it it changes the experience completely yeah this is, wow, yeah. is kind of odd to for me i mean yeah. i've read novels on but EVs. this is actually um, some people would try and read entire manga pages on that without enlarging them and uh it's much more difficult on a phone obviously because your mm-hmm. your kindle is pretty big compared to a phone yeah compared to most people's phones so it's a it's an okay size but yeah. i thought it caught my attention and i thought yeah. i should you know, bring that up because because I know that uh, publishers are sometimes given up on finishing a series in in, an, in a physical form, but they but sometimes they'll release the final volume strictly in digital. Yeah, or that's, that's a bit how that's how longer series now are getting done is through digital, like Kodansha yeah. for Kodansha Advance in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing for longer series, like for example, Space Brothers. It's a brilliant series, Space Brothers, but it's over twenty volumes, so they've been going digital. And if you, I mean, realistically speaking, if you think about issues of artistic merit and so forth and, and convention aside, if you think about the economics of creating manga, uh, paper manga, and not only how difficult it is and expensive it is to get all that paper together, but to bind it and to have trucks to, you know, haul it around, go through distributors. You have to store it. In Japan, you have to go through these giant distribution companies, and it has to be trucked again out to, you know, train station kiosks, and then people lug it home. and, And then when they finish reading the magazines in Japan, they stack them up, usually, 
and then they would have uh, chirigami kokan or paper exchange trucks come around and you'd, you'd give them your old manga magazines and they'd give you like free toilet paper that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it, so if you think about you know that process it's incredibly inefficient so it, it's understandable that things would it just makes shift. me they think would, once they again, would say that about the bygone shifting. era. Once then, again, um, it is a for better or worse scenario. Yeah. Because yeah. there is a lot of uh, interesting drawbacks. Right. No, I was thinking yeah, about right, bygone eras, and you say that, and it goes back to the train again, how you used to hear, and I'm not sure how truthful it was about them leaving a manga, a big one, on the chair and someone else picking it up and reading it. You know what I mean? On their commute. I'm not sure how true that oh, just, was. No, no, you know it's true. I mean? the, the, in the and subways the, in Japan, and I'm at, not sure at if that five o'clock, anymore, you know what I mean? Not anymore. You don't but see, you know what I mean? It's you don't like see crazy. People, you don't see people reading manga on trains anymore. That's because over. Because they have all their devices. So. Either that or they're just not reading them anymore. And actually, sales of manga magazines have plummeted in Japan. It's, it's, it's a, a big issue. It's, it's a thing here, too. I it's mean, a big issue. It's, but they've had, definitely been, been behind on, on the digital curve and stuff like that because they've been very paper-oriented and stuff yeah. like that. So it takes time, but it's interesting to see how they'll go forward because rights yeah. is the biggest issue for, I know, a lot of them. For digital money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. paper, and now that you brought up paper, I know Japan loves the yeah, field. yeah. And I would Japanese hate to too. see paper manga disappear, but you can make the argument, as I often have in talks, is that it's entirely possible that the paper manga format that we love is very much a 20th century phenomenon and sort of like ukiyo-e or woodblock. And Helen McCarthy and talked a lot about buskers yeah. telling stories just mm-hmm. with beside images and mm-hmm. stuff. So. Who but, knows? Uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen? And you also don't know because 10 years from now, may, people may be so tired of the, the ephemeral nature of digital content that they all want, in addition to vinyl albums, they want paper manga. You know, things may change. Who I knows? Guess that's why, yeah, I, yeah, I guess that's, that's why when I pendulum because right. now we have record stores coming back. And that's who right. would have thought that? That's and right. there are some people that want to listen to cassettes. Can you yeah. believe that? Cassettes, yeah. the yeah. audio yeah. quality on yeah. a cassette is just not. No one knows. I no guess that's knows. why. I chose both a book and a digital mm-hmm. version of the same thing. Yeah, no one knows. A- anyway, oh wow, well, it's been great talking. I, I did want to. We did want to regard. You do want to acknowledge this because um, this is your first visit here in 21 years. We are sitting inside the Anime North office, which overlooks um, Dixon Street, right across, and we can we got a view of the Toronto Congress Center right across the street. So, if you're a regular here at Anime North, if you're coming between the two buildings. And coming from the Congress Center into the into the uh, Delta Hotel here, chances are you're coming down this narrow corridor that sits just pa- uh, passing a car rental place, just right at the door over there. But you're also passing the uh, Anime North's year-round office, and we're sitting inside one of the offices, watching Hi, people pass by. Hi, we're, we're we're sitting around <laughs> the. Well, uh, you, I know you remarked as to how this play, how things have changed over 21 years from, um, from uh, Michener to here, to the West End here, yeah, near the airport. Yeah. Actually, my wife was asking me, she said, how many people were at the convention in 1998? And I don't know the exact figure, but I doubt if there were more than 2,000. I would have said, I would have said, and this is just completely uneducated. I would have been so shocked if it got over to four figures myself. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And here we are. I think it. It's scaled up uh, probably a thousand times. It's just what's the number? What was the number that you were aware of last time? Uh, it was around thirty-four thousand, but it probably includes staff and all that. So they they might hit over thirty-five thousand and stuff like that. But it's it's a crazy amount of people. Yeah. But yeah. even thinking back to when you said twenty-one years ago, if it hit four figures, I'd still be incredibly impressed given the era. Given the era and the fact that was Anime North's second goal yeah. round, and mm-hmm. as, as I said, the twenty years have always have been have had its waves as well for Anime North. We've, um, I've, uh, I've watched afar from afar on it and observed it to some degree. As you can see, there, it's, uh, it's a very um, across the board show. Um, lots of stuff to do. It's, it's practically like a, fe- it is it's that amazing. type of it's festival. It's more than just anime and manga. Yeah, it's, it's as amazing. we said, we have the programming for Japanese culture, video yeah. games, like they touch every touch point you yeah. feel sometimes. And also the workshops. I mean, the diversity of the workshops offered, uh, I just find it astounding. And, and, and in a way it's transcended, of course, Japan completely. It's all Asia and 
eventually it'll be everything you know it's just amazing to me yeah it's, it's just uh, sort of how like it's it's an it's mm-hmm. become a little bit more asian a lot more mm-hmm. like gotten to that but mm-hmm. clearly the influence is there i mean mm-hmm. maybe how the how um fandom deals with that with mm-hmm. the culture because now you're translating the fandoms that uh the fandoms that may have res- started in japan mm-hmm. but it's taken on different lives Mm-hmm. elsewhere mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes There's, with with different types of things and it's very different than the fandom in Japan and, yeah. and also of course most people forget that the most of the fan community in Japan and the conventions and the cosplay and everything they forget that a lot of that actually comes from North America to begin with so, so basically yeah, no, there's something it's going like both this, ways it's a world of mirrors I, I remember yeah. what was it the first world uh, was that a world fair or world, I saw world that Con- one image and it was of that sci-fi you know what yeah. I mean and I, it's in my mind but I remember yeah. that being the first time a lot of, and it's quite a strange a lot of the impetus for cosplay and the and the big conventions in Japan came from what Japanese artists saw when they came to North America and they visited like science fiction conventions and then also uh, Comic Con in in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have been it. It was the I first remember, sci- yeah. sci-fi convention, I believe, and it was like, yeah. what was it, the 20s? or It must have been 20s, I want to say. Well, even, even much later, even in... You know, 79, 1980, I can remember going to San Diego co- comic convention with Tezuka and other people like Monkey Punch and whatnot. Oh, and, oh and, my and goodness, yeah, that, that just hits they, home because but, that but he But they, you know, they commented on They said, we got to have more stuff like this in Japan, you know. <laughs> so that's what happened. Well, Here I mean, we are, we were, we as we were doing the panels, um, I forgot yeah. his name, but uh, we saw those other two panels about, a, mm-hmm. you know, talking about um, fandom and how mm-hmm. how how... Japan, it's, uh, Japan, and the rest of the world can mm-hmm. learn from each other on yeah. that. Yeah, and also it's it's this constant mirroring of cultures. That's one of the things that's so fascinating to me. In fact, I wrote a whole book about it, about North America and the four Japans. There's this kind of yes, you know, reflecting back and forth. One of the books I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> I have to. Yeah. I'll, I, I will. I, I'm I'm going to the bookstore. Oh no, that's out of <laughs> or print. Or the library. You know, it's the out library. of print. Don't worry. We can go to the library. <laughs> oh, well. I'll give you a copy. We'll talk another time. <laughs> yeah. um, so oh, the other thing you taught me after that, uh, during the um, after the Japan Foundation um, talk, we had a little bit little reception. Had some, uh, I think, some sushi and uh, other other uh, stuff. And as we were leaving that evening, I told this I told this story to the others uh, on the show. Um, you showed us a, you did a tajimi for us, basically clap the clap, oh. a rhythmic clap for us. So. Okay. Uh, you and the staff did that for oh, wow. as we as we left that. Night. So, wow. so I taught the so I taught a rhythmic clap with the others, and that's our tradition. Oh, Before every every recording, oh, really? later tonight we'll do that. We'll, we always do that. Wow. So, I, but I, I don't even remember that. How about that? Yeah, my own memory. <laughs> There's my memory getting the best of me again, I guess. <laughs> but it was I, I just remember it. I wow, just that's that was great. just that's yeah. what I, don't I remember, remember doing that. But that's great. It's amazing. I I remember eating a, a Chinese food in Chinatown in Toronto with you guys, and then you're remembering the clapping. Thing. <laughs> I do have one. It's like we're piecing the whole like yeah. as I said, all those are, days together, aren't we? We're like um, telling a story. We can reconstruct memories by just sort of merging what we remember. That's why I want to. Maybe I'll have to talk to my dad and my yeah. older uncle um, a little bit yeah. more about my father, mm-hmm. about my grandfather. That's right. And then, of course, what people don't remember, it's okay. You just make it up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe partly I did. Yeah. Um, before we go, I do have one thing to give you. Um, oh. Underneath, I do want to show this to you. Um, since uh, we were talking a little bit of history. Uh, in a past episode, and I, I, I know you take some interest in history, um, in a past episode, we brought up the story of the Vancouver Asahi baseball team, oh. which was a popular, like, which was a championship oh, wow. amateur team, I think, in Vancouver in the pre-war, and got disbanded, obviously, mm-hmm. at the war because everybody got taken into internment camps. Yeah. Uh, about a couple of years ago, they were inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Wow. A major motion picture has been made about them, and we talked at length about the dilemma of making a, a Japanese movie based on a, Cana- a very Canadian story. And earlier this, about a month or so ago, Canada Post announced that they'd issue a stamp to commemorate the group. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my friends is a historian about on um, Japanese internment camps in Canada. And she really hyped up having this. And she was nice enough to give this to me because she knew I wanted to give it to you. Oh, wow. So this is, a, this, is, um, this is the booklet and a stamp. Oh, thank you. A stamp of... Uh, 
from it, oh, stamp wow. based on it. I know you you, you take some yeah. interest in history. So I do. Yeah, thank you. This is a in distinct part of Canadian history oh, wow. and the angle, the um, Japanese internment camp angle yeah, in here oh, in Canada. Thank you. Um, my understanding is one only one member of the of the Vancouver Asahi is still alive. Kai, his name is Kai Kamenishi. Wow! And um, I don't know where he lives. The I think he lives in Toronto these days. Well, you should interview him. Oh, I don't know if I'm the one who should be. <laughs> um, I, I, the funny enough, though, I know that maybe we can get a connection because my my friend does know her, has met yeah, my friend ha my friend has met him. Well, I think you should try and interview him. That would be valuable. Well, I mean, we can talk about maybe what he thought yeah. of the movie, but yeah. we talk about it in that in that angle. Yeah. But I thought you'd be I, I thought you'd yeah. take some interest oh, in no, uh, knowing you. the story and yeah. learning the story. No, it's so, great. Um, thank you. And maybe you can search out the movie itself. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a documentary on the National Film Board website here in Canada that taught a uh, one-hour documentary, and then of course the movie, which came out in 2017. Oh. I think it had its it had its Canadian premiere in Vancouver, I believe. It's it's Canadian premiere in Vancouver. It was screened here in Toronto at the time as well, oh. and I know it, it, it played to it. a sold ha sold out house. Great. Wow. So um, oh, that's for you, and you. I hope you, you know, maybe learn that story, uh, yeah, learn another thank you. fascinating story. Thank you, wow. thank you so, very much. Um, that's, and that's from myself and everybody here. Uh, oh, great. From thanks. myself and everybody here for uh, taking the time. No, uh, and I'm sorry if uh, no, 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 we kept no. too much time. No, 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 it's been great. So, so thank you very much for interviewing me. Well, yeah, it is yeah. such a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. such a pleasure. Yeah. And I hope we get to talk at, le yeah. uh, at least on email again. Yeah, and hopefully it won't be... 20 years? 20 years. <laughs> we'll talk again. We'll talk again. Okay, um, thank Fred you. shot everybody. Thank you. Once again, a real thank pleasure. You. And, uh, thank you. Well, that's, 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 that's it for us. We'll that's talk. great. Okay.